0: Today's episode of Binge Mode is brought to you by Luca and Danny. Luca and Danny jewelry is the perfect gift for women you are most grateful for this holiday season, whether it's that special someone, a mother, daughter, friends, or even yourself.
1: From their iconic bangle bracelets and stacks to beautiful rings, necklaces, and earrings, each piece symbolizes what matters to her most and is handcrafted right here in the USA. Let me tell you about these stacks. I know... These stacks are absolute delights because, fortunate enough to receive one, I received a Ravenclaw stack. And here's what's so cool about this, that you can customize it. You can build a stack of these bracelets with the ideas and the themes and the symbols that appeal to you most. My Ravenclaw stack has multiple delightful bracelets in it that tap into the themes of Ravenclaw house, my house. Traits that a Ravenclaw would prize, just wonderful. Can
0: mix and match, build whatever feels right for you or for someone special in your life. It's lovely. Go to lucadanny.com and use code binge mode to get 15% off and free shipping on your first purchase. That's lucadann dot Luca and Danny embrace the journey. WARNING BINGE MODE contains adult content. That's right. A lot of talk about wands. Once again, more wand talk. About bonding with your wand. About looking for the wand. And If that's not the kind of double and triple and quadruple entendre that you're into, check out one of the other podcasts on the Ringer Podcast Network. Like Winging It with Vince Carter, Kent Bazemore, and Annie Finberg. The latest podcast on the Ringer Podcast network. One more warning: binge mode contains spoilers.
1: If you don't yet know why we're chatting about Egbert the egregious and Emmerich the evil, mm. two of our favorites, Love please it. proceed with extreme caution. And now, binge mode. I've got a copy, Mister Lovegood. I've got it right here.
0: And she pulled out the Tales of Beetle the Bard from the small beaded bag. The original? Inquired Xenophilius sharply. And when she nodded, he said, Well then, why don't you read it aloud? Much the best way to make sure we all understand? Er, uh, all right, said Hermione nervously. She opened the book, and Harry saw that the symbol they were investigating headed the top of the page as she gave a little cough and began to read.
1: There were once three brothers who were traveling along a lonely, winding road at twilight. And welcome to Binge Mode Harry Potter on the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Mallory Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. Oh, what a great website and podcast network. Joining me today, now that he's finished fishing for freshwater plimpies for tonight's soup. I swear to God, I'm fishing for him right now.
0: (laughs) It's Ringer, senior creative, your headmaster, Jason Concepcion. Mal. Everybody always requests my recipe, just like they request Binge Mode, Harry Potter, where we're exploring every facet of the Harry Potter universe. Whether you'd pick the cloak, the wand, or the stone, please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and please rate and review us. Five points at stars for Binge Mode. Also, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Binge Underscore Mode, aka The Underscore, and join our Facebook group, which is just for Binge Mode fans, which is an excellent place to try to pick up loxia's trail please also head to ringer.com slash shop to check out our new binge mode merch it won't save you from an a explosion that's an a horn guys <laughs> they're gonna match fabulously with your dirigible plum earrings last time i'm binge mode harry potter we explored
1: how testing faith shapes chapters 18 and 19 of harry potter and the deathly hallows and on today's episode we're diving into chapters 20 through 22 Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge, as always. While those chapters are today's primary focus, we will be going deep, deep on details from all seven books and ten films. Oh! Yes, including the new Fantastic Beast movie and the wider Potter canon. Mm. Taking the entire series into account, from the moment the gertie root infusion hits our lips, mm. oh, it's <cliffs> <tastes> great. <gasps> Does it? So, mind the mistletoe. Climb the spiral stairs because it's time to find
0: a quester. Mel, there were once two podcast hosts who were traveling along a lonely, winding road at twilight, and they are us. So let's offer up a brief refresher on what actually happened in Hallows' chapters twenty to twenty-two by climbing aboard the Scarlet Seam Engine, a plot the Hogwarts Express. Juju. With Ron back in the fold, the trio's next step is to head to Xenophilius Lovegood's house so Luna's dad can explain the story behind the odd triangular eye symbol Hermione keeps finding everywhere. Xenophilius tells them about the quest for the Deathly Hallows, three
1: objects that, legend has it, were made by death himself. And if united,
0: give the possessor the power to conquer death. Lovegood tries to sell out the trio to the Death Eaters in exchange for the imprisoned Luna, but they escape, and Harry grows obsessed with the Hallows. He's convinced they're real, that he already has one and maybe
1: a second, and that Voldemort is searching for the third, an unbeatable wand. One night,
0: though, Harry grows rash as he talks about his belief and utters Voldemort's name, activating the taboo, and leaving our heroes trapped in their tents, surrounded by enemies. Jason. Yes. Very, very few podcasters
1: believe. Fools! (laughs) (laughs) And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's dive into the pensive Mm. to sift through our thoughts. The defining theme of chapters 20 through 22 of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows
0: is Symbols. Chapter 20, Love Lovegood. It's the day after Ron's return. And Hermione is still furious, though her fury at least is of the cold and silent variety. Ron, meanwhile, is doing his level best to seem contrite, which to him means maintaining a mask of mournful melancholy when in her presence. To Harry, the vibe between Ron and Hermione makes him feel like, quote, the only non-mourner at a poorly attended funeral. <laughs> Yet as soon as Hermione's out of sight and earshot, Ron positively glows, pointing out to Harry that the dough surely means that they have help. Someone sent that dough. Someone's on our side. One of our hooks down, mate. I love it. I know.
1: Ron has a great energy in these chapters. Yeah,
0: like, great so couple chapters just, for Ron. I just love the idea of like <laughs> Hermione walking away and like Ron, like very dour, and then just punching Harry hard in the arm. <laughs> we could do it, man. It's great. I love it. Harry is similarly cheerful so buoyed by their swinging fortunes with the dough, the sword, and Ron's return that he even believes they'll be able to do what had so recently begun to seem impossible, find another horcrux. During one of the moments when Ron and Harry escape Hermione's sour mood to exchange news from their time apart, Ron, while filling Harry in on the dire obstacles facing Muggleborns in their attempts to evade the Snatchers, asks Harry how he found out about, quote, the taboo. Harry is perplexed. The what? The FX show with Tom Hardy? Right. No? The what? Ron says, you and Hermione have stopped saying you know whose name. Oh, yeah, well, it's just a bad habit we've slept into, said Harry. But I haven't got a problem calling... No! (laughs) Ron shouts, (laughs) halting Harry before he can activate the jinx that he now explains. Voldemort is placed on his name enabling (laughs) through a magical disturbance that breaks protective enchantments. His minions track those who utter the self-assigned sobriquet. He explains, it's how the Death Eaters found Harry, Ron, and Hermione in the cafe in Tottenham Court Road. Let's go Gunners. 4-2 over the Spurs. It's great this weekend. Remember, Tom Marvolo Riddle created the name Lord Voldemort to serve as a symbol of power and status and terror. For himself, in shedding his, quote, filthy muggle father's name, to embrace his status as Slytherin's heir, for those who supported him to rally around, and a dark sign for those who defied him to fear. In Chamber of Secrets, Tom tells Harry, quote, I fashioned myself a new name, a name I knew wizards everywhere would one day fear to speak. And he was right. Ron highlights the brilliance of Voldemort exploiting the exceedingly rare and thus trademark fearlessness of his most dedicated foes, Harry Chief amongst them, by placing a jinx upon the name that only a select few enemies dare to use. Quick and easy way to find order members, Ron says, underlining the danger by telling Harry that the Death Eaters very nearly caught Kingsley using this method. Yeah, a bunch of Death Eaters cornered him, Bill said, but he fought his way out. He's on the run now, just like us. Sounds like a great season of Law and Order, guys. Doesn't it? It really does. (laughs) Get at us, Netflix slash Hulu slash Amazon. Slash crackle. we picky. Crack- anyone. <laughs> get on that crackle dollars.
1: Ron, who we love dearly. Love him. Dearly. But who we must concede here does not seem to have a very good mental inventory of order members patronuses.
0: He's not a paying
1: attention guy. <laughs> Wonders allowed. Whether Kingsley could be the one who sent the dough, of course, as Harry points out, the Auror's Patronus, which they saw issue a life-saving warning in a memorable moment at Bill and Fleur's wedding, is a lynx. The Patronus charm is one of our favorite bits of magic in the series, in part because of what it symbolizes. One of the roles fantasy and magic play in our everyday lives is giving form and meaning to powerful emotions, to tragedy, to loss. And as in the case of the Patronus Charm, to conquering those things through the strength of happiness, hope, goodness, light, love. A Patronus takes the shape of a fundamental characteristic of a respective witch or wizard, the, quote, awakened secret self, as Professor Catalyst Spangle puts it. Shots to all my Spangle heads out there. The silver dough, of course, symbolizes Snape's love for Lily Potter, Patronus was a doe when she was alive. It is, in a very real sense, Snape's tribute to her, an awakened secret self, the great secret of his life, the essence of his drive and heart on magical display. But until Harry learns that truth in the prince's tale, the mystery will remain. And with Kingsley definitively off the board, Ron wonders if their secret protector could be someone else. Harry, he says, you don't reckon it could have been Dumbledore. He looks slightly embarrassed as he says it but notes that Dumbledore had the real sword. Quote, Harry did not laugh at Ron because he understood too well the longing behind the question. The idea that Dumbledore had managed to come back to them, that he was watching over them, would have been inexpressibly comforting. Dumbledore is in many ways still the most powerful symbol of all, of hope and faith, of trust and victory. Even as that faith has been tested, even as that trust has crumbled, the idea of Dumbledore's assistance and guidance remains the greatest comfort. Our trio has found so much strength in themselves, but that hasn't erased, could never erase the most human desire that we all carry. To believe that the person we love will be there for us no matter what. And as we'll understand fully in time, Dumbledore is there for them still, guiding Snape and the sword to Harry, guiding Ron back to his friends with the Deluminator, guiding Hermione to the legend of the Deathly Hallows, and so on. But Harry is adamant. Dumbledore's dead, he said. I saw it happen. I saw the body. He's definitely gone. Anyway, His Patronus was a phoenix, not a doe. Come on, Ron! (laughs) As Ron notes, though, Patronuses can change. Tonksus did. Quote, "'Yeah, but if Dumbledore was alive, "'why wouldn't he show himself?' Harry asks. "'Why wouldn't he just hand us the sword?' "'Search me,' said Ron. "'Same reason he didn't give it to you while he was alive? "'Same reason he left you an old snitch "'and Hermione a book of kids' stories. "'Which is what?' asked Harry, "'turning to look Ron full in the face, "'desperate for the answer.' This conversation is a wonderful bit of craftsmanship from JKR because it does several important things at once. It reminds us how Patronus' work and, in doing so, deepens the mystery surrounding who casts the dough and the ultimate payoff of finding out. It reminds us about the items that Dumbledore willed to our friends and the secrets that those items conceal. And it reminds us of the deepest hunger that Harry and co-carry to again feel Dumbledore's embrace— priming us for the reveals to come in the prince's tale and king's cross by proffering the possibility, slim as it might seem here, that Dumbledore might still have a role to play in events.
0: Ron says that in his darker moments, he allowed himself to wonder if Dumbledore was just having a laugh, but he knows that this isn't true. From the book, he knew what he was doing when he gave me the deluminator, didn't he? He, well, Ron continues, ears burning red. He must have known I'd run out on you. Harry responds with authority and kindness. No, he must have known you'd always want to come back. It's a powerful gesture from Harry, an absolution in one statement of Ron's mistake and regret. It's also an acknowledgement that Dumbledore's surface actions often concealed his true intent, his deeper purpose and understanding. Dumbledore was a man of countless secrets. One unexpected result of that secrecy was a kind of mystique, which the publication of Life and Lies, however, has now sullied. Ron doesn't think the reveal of Dumbly's fascist flirtation phase is all that big of a deal. He was, after all, quote, really young. Harry Trenchley points out, as he had when Hermione raised the same point, that Albus was, quote, our age. Of course, Dumbledore became Dumbledore, that great symbol of light's eternal battle against darkness, love's struggle against hate, because of that flirtation with the dark. Because when faced with Ariana's death and the real cost of Grindelwald's seductive philosophy, he found it too steep, irrevocable. Harry is right that Dumbledore at their age should have been expected to better know what was right and what was wrong. But then again, Harry, Ron, and Hermione had each other, and they had Dumbledore with all his life experience and self-awareness to help light their way. Young Albus did not.
1: Harry turns his attention to a spider in their midst, attempting to engorge and then shrink it with a new wand that Ron has given him, which Hermione reluctantly examined and identified as blackthorn wood. It feels, quote, intrusively unfamiliar, like having somebody else's hand sewn to the end of his arm. The wand chooses the wizard, remember, and that choice signifies an elemental bond, one of the most fundamentally important relationships in a witcher wizard's life. Hermione implores Harry to keep practicing. That is all a matter of confidence. But that isn't true. Harry is not the master of this wand, and he knows it. As Harry continues to practice that night, levitating stones as he keeps watch, Ron pulls a small wooden wireless out of his bag, telling Harry about a program, quote, that tells the news like it really is. The bulk of programs are under Voldemort's control, and no surprise. Think of Varys' famous quote to Tyrion about power. Power resides where men believe it resides, no more and no less. So power is a mummer's trick, Tyrion says. Varys replies, a shadow on the wall, yet shadows can kill. And oftentimes a very small man can cast a very large shadow. Voldemort understands this. Taking the ministry, leaning on the Daily Prophet, leaning on other media outlets, these aren't essential measures to wreak havoc, which he could have continued to do in the shadows. But they're imperative for elevating his regime from lurking threat to undeniable omnipresent force, creeping into every corner of the lives of those over whom Voldemort seeks to rule. Challenging that is equally essential. And Ron's tease of the program that's working so hard to challenge the fascist oppression of a free press that they record on the move changing locations to avoid detection requiring a password to access their broadcast, promises that someone is trying to chip
0: away at it. Our first exposure to this broadcast will have to wait, though. Ron can't deduce this night's password before Hermione walks over to broach the most overt symbol in this book, the mark that our friends will soon discover to be the sign of the Deathly Hallows. I want to go and see Xenophilius Lovegood, Hermione tells Harry. She pushes their copy of Life and Lies in front of the befuddled Harry, saying, it's that mark, the mark in Beetle the Bard, as she opens to a page showing a photograph of the letter that Dumbledore wrote to Grindelwald. Look at the signature, Harry. Harry looks closely at the picture to find that in the letter, young Dumbledore signed his name with the little triangular eye that scratched into Beetle and that Zeno love wore on his neck and that Hermione spotted it on the grave in Godric's Hollow in place of the A in Albus. They can't ask Dumbledore or Grindelwald or the buried Peverells for an explanation for the truth of what this emblem represents, but they can't ask Luna's dotty dad. I'm sure this is important, Harry, she says. Harry, disillusioned by Dumbledore's secrecy and trail of breadcrumbs methods, and newly cautious after their near-death experience at Godric's Hollow, disagrees. For once, he's not eager to go off chasing blindly after more clues. But it keeps appearing, Harry, Hermione says. Dumbledore left me the tales of Beetle the Bard. How do you know we're not supposed to find out about the sign? Here we go again, he shouts. We keep trying to convince ourselves Dumbledore left us secrets and signs and clues. Ah, did, as Ron points Mm -hmm. out, both because it's true and because he's eager to win some points with Hermione by supporting her. He says, the deluminator turned out to be pretty useful. Harry's pretty sure Ron would jump headfirst into a (laughs) toilet if Hermione said that's where they should go next, though. Ron won't be cowed, noting that Godric's hollow was totally unfamiliar territory while Luna's dad and his publication have openly declared for Harry. Since Harry's interview in Order of the Phoenix, the Quibbler has stood as a symbol of dissent from the norm and support for Harry, regardless of how unpopular that stance was at the time. There's comfort in that, albeit comfort that will ultimately prove misguided and speak to how tenuous support can be. A truly strange moment ensues here with Harry saying in response to Hermione repeating that she's sure this is important, but don't you think if it was Dumbledore would have told me about it before he died? Harry! <laughs> Wait, what? Based on what? <laughs> <laughs> Our guy is going through a lot, literally carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders, meeting challenges to his confidence and trust and literal life alike at every turn. But here he's using logic totally contrary to what he's been saying for the bulk of this book as he's questioned why Dumbledore has told him so little and left right. him to question so much. Right. Quote, maybe... Maybe it's something you need to find out for yourself, Hermione says, and she'll turn out to be right. Dumbledore withheld much from Harry, that he didn't need to, but this was deliberate, with Harry needing to learn about the Hallows on his own and consciously decide not to go for them. A quest can't be handed down, and neither can clarity or true mastership, all of which Harry will find over the course of this book. Yeah, said Ron sycophantically, that makes sense. (laughs) I love this yeah, part. No, it doesn't, snapped Hermione. <laughs> but I still think we ought to talk to Mr. Lovegood. <laughs> so good. From the book again. A symbol that links Domeleur, Grindelwald, and Godric's hollow, Harry? I'm sure we ought to know about this. Ron suggests that they vote on it. Guess how this goes. <laughs> From the book. His hand flew into the air before Hermione's. Her lips quivered suspiciously as she raised her own. Maybe this was also in 12 fail-safe ways? With two votes to one, the eyes have it. Fine said Harry, half amused, half irritated. Only once we've seen Lovegood, let's try and look for some more horcruxes, shall we? The Lovegoods, Ron says, live close
1: to the Weasleys, which readers have known since Goblet of Fire when the Lovegoods were listed as one of the families in the Diggory-Weasley-Porky zone, JK, planting so many seeds so early. Where precisely they live, Ron is less sure. And so they disapparate the next morning to a hillside within sight of the orchard, masking the burrow from muggle eyes. Ron observes how strange it is to be close to home and yet unable to see his family. And Hermione notes coldly that he was just home for the holidays. And in the ensuing conversation, we discover that that was not true. Ron had really been laying up at Shell Cottage, Bill and Floor's new home, where we will be heading very soon. I wasn't at the borough, said Ron with an incredulous laugh. Do you think I was going to go back there and tell them all I'd walked out on you? This is an important reminder here, that our actions are symbols, too of our intention and our desires. Ron couldn't risk the twins, Ginny, his parents, thinking that he'd abandon Harry. Bill, he knew, would be a gentler judge. Ron, turning his back on the burrow, again prioritizing Harry and the mission over the pull of family, leads them onward in pursuit of Luna's home. They wander hither and yon for hours, Harry under the cloak, per Hermione's insistence, disappearing to a new stretch of hillside before finally coming upon a strange house. Quote, great black cylinder with a ghostly moon hanging behind it in the afternoon sky. It's just weird enough to belong to the love goods. That's gotta be Luna's house. Who else would live in a place like <laughs> that, Ron says. It looks like a giant rook. He's channeling his inner chess master here, taking the lead just as he did on McGonagall's transfigured board long ago in the dungeons in Sorcerer's Stone. Three signs on the gate confirm Ron's suspicion. Harry takes off the cloak as he's the one that Xenophilius has campaigned openly to help. And they knock on the door, and after mere seconds it opens, and Xeno Love appears, but he's looking kind of rough. He's not looking good. Barefoot, stained nightshirt, unkempt hair. Candidly, this sounds like me every night at home. <laughs> so, save your fucking judgment. Shrieking his demands to know who it is, before his eyes fall upon Harry and his mouth, quote, fell open in a perfect, comicalo. hello.
0: Hello, Mr. Lovegood. Said Harry, holding out his hand. (laughs) I'm Harry. Harry Potter. He asks if they can enter to ask him something. Mr. Lovegood hesitates. We'll soon learn that the Death Eaters have Luna and have placed Mr. Lovegood in a truly terrible position. Yes. To give up Harry Potter's life in exchange for his daughter's. Xenophilius is shocked by the clearly unexpected appearance of the Chosen One, which both gives him a chance to get Luna back in exchange for the boy who lived but also forces him to consider actually turning in the savior he's championed so fiercely to this point. I, I'm not sure that's advisable, whispered Xenophilius. He swallowed and cast a quick look around the garden. Rather shock, my word. I, I'm afraid I don't really think I ought to. It won't take long, said Harry, slightly disappointed by the less than warm welcome. I, oh, all right then, coming quickly, quickly. (laughs) The Lovegood resonance is as peculiar on the inside as it is striking from the outside. From the book, everything was curved to fit the walls, the stove, the sink, and the cupboards. And all of it had been painted with flowers, insects, and birds, and bright primary colors. Sounds wonderful. Mm. Lovely. Harry can feel Luna's influence suffusing the decor. Mr. Lovegood leads them up a spiral staircase to a living room that appears to double as the headquarters of the Quivler. He asks our friends the reason for their visit. But before they can answer, Hermione notices something quite alarming. Mr. Lovegood, what's that? She was pointing at an enormous gray spiral horn, not unlike that of a unicorn, which had been mounted on the wall, protruding several feet into the room. Why, it's the horn of a crumpled horn, snorkak. He answers, of course it is. Hermione, however, is pretty sure it's the distinctive <laughs> and highly explosive horn of an eruptant, a class B tradable material, she says, that she's read about in the homie newts' commander's textbook, Fantastic Beats and Where to Find Them. Is that Chekhov's Rumpet Horns music? <laughs> I remember reading that the first time. I'm like, oh, so that's blowing up, right? <laughs> that's going to explode. Yeah, incredible. Incredible. Hermione, despite Harry's embarrassed protestations, pushes the point. But Zeno Love says, I bought it two weeks ago from a delightful young wizard who knew of my interest in the exquisite snowcack. <laughs> Shades of Hagrid and the fateful dragon's egg. Mr. Lovegood, clearly through arguing with Hermione about the nature of this highly explosive object on his wall, gets down to brass tacks. Why exactly have you come here, Mr. Potter? We need some help, he says. Mr. Lovegood again hesitates. From the book, he seemed simultaneously terrified and mesmerized. Giving aid and comfort to undesirable number one and his friends is a hazardous proposition, he points out. Ron, taken aback, by the apparent hypocrisy, Bowley replies that the Quibbler is a bastion of pro-Harry sentiment and that Zeno is the one who keeps telling the masses it's their duty to support Harry. Uh, yes, I have expressed that view, however. <laughs> that's for everyone else to do, not you personally, said Ron. Our friends don't know that the Death Eaters have seized Luna, but in this moment of confusion, the idea that one of the most vocal advocates of Harry's cause could be full of shit sits on their spirits like a dead weight. Hermione... Trying to move
1: things forward and find common cause suggests asking Luna what she thinks. But where is our dear Luna, who should be home for the Christmas holiday? Quote, Xenophilius gulped. He seemed to be stealing himself. Now, this isn't quite a woman who appears able to see through magical disguises and smells like literal shit and refuses to speak in front of Hermione, (laughs) asking Harry to follow her into a strange bedroom levels of alarming. But it's close. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely unsettling enough that our pals should probably run. Stat. But they need information. That's why they're here. That's all the hope they have. And so they stay put. As Zeno gathers himself and says, after swallowing hard, Luna is down at the stream fishing for freshwater plimpies. She, she would like to see you. I'll go and call her. And then, yes, very well, I shall try to help you. He disappears downstairs and outside, ostensibly to fetch Luna, but in actuality to contact the Death Eaters and try to secure the release of his daughter in exchange for their top prize. Cowardly old wart, said (laughs) Ron. Great Ron stretch. Luna's got ten times his guts. Hermione agrees that this alarming behavior seems highly hypocritical, and Harry takes Zeno's absence as an opportunity to explore the house, wandering to a window and gazing out at the landscape. Somewhere just beyond the hills is the burrow. Turning away from the window, Harry sees on a cluttered shelf a bust of a witch, quote, wearing a most bizarre-looking headdress. Two objects that resemble golden ear trumpets curved out from the sides. A tiny pair of glittering blue wings was stuck to a leather strap that ran over the top of her head, while one of the orange radishes that had been stuck to a second strap around her forehead. Xenophilius returns without Luna, but with an infusion of gurdy root. Mmm. Mm. noticing the objects, then... Yeah. That has Harry's interest, remarks that the headdress is, quote, modeled fittingly enough upon the head of the beautiful Rowena Ravenclaw. Wit beyond measure is man's greatest treasure, he explains what's on the headdress, all connected to the traits that Ravenclaw House prizes. For example, the dirigible plum, he says, so as to enhance <laughs> the ability to God, accept the extraordinary. I actually love that. It's great. Much like Harry possesses, yes. much like readers of this great tale do, too. The arrival of the headdress is yet more masterful Horcrux foreshadowing from J.K.R. In Half-Blood Prince, Dumbledore shared with Harry his well-educated guess that Voldemort, in his vanity, would seek to hide the shards of his soul in objects related to the four founders of Hogwarts. Harry and Ron destroyed Slytherin's locket, shouts to Ron. Mm-hmm. And Harry knows the Voldemort has Helga Hufflepuff's cup, though its whereabouts are currently a mystery we will soon learn that it's in the cuck Rodolphus's vault (laughs) at (laughs) Gringotts. That leaves, as Harry said to Dumbledore and Half-Blood Prince, in an exchange that generated a metric ton of theorizing, quote, something of Ravenclaw's or of Gryffindor's. Mm -hmm. Now, Harry Mm -hmm. in his way will prove to be the Gryffindor in which part of Voldemort's soul resides. But Dumbledore expressed his certainty to Harry that Voldemort never got his hands on an actual object that once belonged to the Great Founder, leaving Harry to focus on finding something from Ravenclaw house. And this exchange with anophilias, though Harry is not focusing on the implications of it here, is invaluable insight into what the Ravenclaw Horcrux could and will prove to be. Readers who spent the wait between Prince and Hallow's harping on the line in which Harry marked the Half-Blood Prince's potions book by perching, quote, a dusty old wig and a tarnished tiara on the statue's head to make it more distinctive, And the likelihood of that tiara proving to be Ravenclaw's horcrux surely shrieked with hysterical glee upon learning from Zeno that the founder had been associated with just such an object. It is particularly masterful work from J.K. here because when Harry first walks up into the living room housing this creation, he thinks that Lovegood's workroom, quote, somewhat resembled the Room of Requirement Mm. on the unforgettable occasion that it had transformed itself into a gigantic labyrinth comprised of centuries of hidden objects. Later in this book, of course, Harry will need to search for the real Rowena Ravenclaw's real headgear in the real Room of Requirement. Incredible. Here now, after much delay, Xenophilius lies about Luna's impending arrival and then asks what it is precisely that he can help Harry with. Well, said Harry, glancing at Hermione, who nodded encouragingly, It's about that symbol you were wearing around your neck at Bill and Fleur's wedding, Mr. Lovegood.
0: Dun-dun-dun.
1: We wondered what it meant.
0: Dun-dun-dun.
1: Xenophilius raised his eyebrows. Dun-dun-dun. Are you referring to the sign of the deathly hell? Dun, dun, dun. One of the true will never forget moments for readers, especially because it's more than halfway through the book. Yeah. Now you've seen the object, as we'll learn, throughout the entire story. It's been there the whole time, but the words, the actual words of the title, 54% according to my Kindle.
0: Oh my god, here we go again with this. <laughs> the story it's just incredible. Anyway. CHAPTER twenty one The Tale Of the Three Brothers. Yes Harry Ron and even Hermione, perhaps the most learned witch of her generation, have not heard of the Deathly Hallows. Xenophilius isn't surprised. Very, very few wizards believe He mentions his run in with Vic the Dick, at Bill and Fleur's wedding when the dick was irate that Mr. Lovegood was sporting what he believed to be Grindelwald's mark so openly. Such ignorance, he says. There is nothing dark about the Hallows. So fear not, Hallows tattoo havers and potential owners. Yeah. (laughs) At least not in that crude sense, he continues. One simply uses the symbol to reveal oneself to other believers in the hope that they might help one with the quest. Our friends are perplexed. Well, you see, believers, seek the Hallows. Okay, but what are the Hallows? And what is this quest, this seeking? Xenophilius, guzzling, gertie root infusion like Rob and Aaron <laughs> sucking at mama's teat, <laughs> explains that it all starts with the tale of the three brothers. Oh, God. He asks if they're familiar. Harry <laughs> says no. But Hermione and Ron both say yes. <clears throat> Not to worry, Hannah, my boy. The story in question can be found in wouldn't you know it. The Tales of Beedle the Bard. Zeno moves to grab his copy. Hermione says, no need. She's got a copy on her. The gift from Dumbledore. The original, Zeno asks, clearly impressed. (laughs) First, Albus's deluminator brought Ron back to his friends, and now his personal copy of Tales comes into play. Dumbledore's plan is simmering. The cipher becoming clearer at last. Xenophilius bids her read it aloud. Quote, Much the best way to make sure we all understand. We've spoken before about the wonderful meta-symbolism of J.K.'s use of books within her books. Think back to when Sorcerer's Stone was becoming a phenomenon and how the panic that the book was corrupting young minds and promoting the occult became part of the real-world narrative surrounding the story. It cannot then be a coincidence that the plot of Chamber of Secrets revolves around a diary. Enchanted with dark magic, a horcrux we now know, which mesmerizes, corrupts, and captures the mind and spirit of Ginny Weasley. In Half-Blood Prince, Harry's use of Severus Snape's old textbook created a dynamic in which Harry's hatred and loathing and mistrust of Snape was intertwined with his fascination with the magic that Snape, unbeknownst to Harry at the time of this infatuation, created as a student. A commentary of sorts on how different aspects of a person can be revealed through writing, how the words can become a symbol for the truest intentions— that the being himself sometimes fails to convey. Now, the tale of the three brothers and the tales of Beale the a book of stories which Ron quite recently dismissed as being, for kids, the very same criticism all too often lobbed at the Harry Potter series, comes center stage.
1: Er, all right, Hermione says, and when she cracks open the tome, Harry sees the symbol in question. That triangular eye that we now know is the sign of the Deathly Hallows, atop the page scratched by Dumbledore himself to lead Hermione, Harry, and Ron to this very moment of discovery and all that will come after. There were once three brothers who were traveling along a lonely, winding road at twilight, Hermione begins, but Ron interrupts her <laughs> to say that this mom always said midnight. <laughs> what a smooth move, Xlax, this is. This play is is an amusing bit of interference in the moment, especially in light of his ensuing apology when Hermione shoots (laughs) daggers at him for interrupting. But it also serves to remind us of the role Beatles' fables played in The Wizarding World. The tale of the three brothers was so ingrained in the Weasleys' lives and routine that Molly, it appears, recited it from heart, subbing certain words, making it her own, as we all do with the stories that we love. Hermione continues, quote, This story's so good. In time... The brothers reached a river too deep to wade through and too dangerous to swim across. However, these brothers were learned in the magical arts, and so they simply waved their wands and made a bridge appear across the treacherous water. They were halfway across it when they found their path blocked by a hooded figure, and death spoke to them. Another amusing interjection with Harry expressing befuddlement that death could speak, and Hermione reminding him that this is a fairy tale. And another occasion to pause and consider what's already on offer here in this parable, Quote, he was angry that he had been cheated out of three new victims, for travelers usually drowned in the river. But death was cunning. He pretended to congratulate the three brothers upon their magic and said that each had earned a prize for having been clever enough to evade him. Immediately, before we even hear what the brothers ask of death, we are prompted to consider that nothing is free. Everything in life has a cost, a tax, and magic is no different, which is, of course, one of the great sources of power in the best fantasy stories. If magic fixed everything, there would be no consequences. And without consequences, our choices wouldn't matter. Magic doesn't discount our humanity. It amplifies it. And part of life is death, portrayed here as it so often is in literature and lore as a hooded figure. Literally cloaked, just like our understanding. The truth of what awaits us after our time on Earth ends is invisible to us as Harry beneath his halo. We cannot know what death will bring but faith is trusting in that which you cannot see. Death casts its shadow across the entire series, taking many forms and one. Voldemort's horcruxes, the resurrection stone, the veil in the department of mysteries, the flash of green light that signals the killing curse, the shapes of loved ones lost in the mirror of Erised and the memories drawn forth by dementors and the whispers emerging from the twin wands, the grim, destrals, phoenixes and the ever-present idea of rebirth, the yew tree and regeneration, and fury, ghosts, portraits of the dead, the sorcerer's stone and elixir of life, the neither-can-live language in the prophecy, the price of breaking an unbreakable vow, the epigraphs that begin book seven, and so on and so on. Death and the afterlife are a central preoccupation of the Harry Potter saga, starting with Harry's parents' deaths and ending with Harry's sacrifice and journey to and return from King's Cross. The epitaph on Lillian James's grave reads, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And as Hermione tells Harry, that's not about beating death. It's about accepting it. And in that acceptance, truly mastering it. As Dumbledore tells Voldemort in Order of the Phoenix, your failure to understand that there are things much worse than death has always been your greatest weakness. We're about to see that it's two of the three
0: brothers as well. So the oldest brother, Hermione continues, who was a combative man, asked for a wand more powerful than any in existence, a wand that must always win duels for its owner, a wand worthy of a wizard who had conquered death. So death crossed to an elder tree on the banks of the river, fashioned a wand from a branch that hung there and gave it to the oldest brother. So we highlighted above with Voldemort in his efforts to control the press. Power is an illusion, the greedy and fearful work to craft and maintain. And what would a combative wizard eager to impress with his strength crave more than the unenlightened consider the ultimate symbol of might? An insurmountable wand, of course, the Elder one, as we'll learn. We'll see over the rest of the tale and the ensuing discussion of it what a hollow notion this is. But symbols don't always reflect reality. Often, they're dispensed strategically to distort reality, conveying the truth one wants others to believe, not the truth as it actually is. When Harry and Dumbledore speak of the Hallows in King's Cross, Albus conveys the forceful pull the wand had over him, and especially Grindelwald. The unbeatable wand, he says, the weapon that would lead us to power. Grindelwald, as we know, took the wand from Gregorovitch, and Dumbledore, as we know, or read a voice, at least we think we know, (laughs) won it from him in their duel of legend. But Dumbledore never celebrated that aspect of the victory, never sought to brag about the dominant coveted object in his hands, as he'll tell Harry in King's Cross— I was fit only to possess the meanest of them the least extraordinary I was fit to own the elder wand and not to boast of it and not to kill with it I was permitted to tame it and to use it because I took it not for gain but to save others from it The oldest brother did not seek it for those reasons and Voldemort isn't seeking it for those reasons either they wanted it to convince themselves that they were invincible and to convince others of it too
1: Hermione continues quote Then the second brother, who was an arrogant man, decided that he wanted to humiliate death still further and asked for the power to recall others from death. So death picked up a stone from the riverbank and gave it to the second brother and told him that the stone would have the power to bring back the dead. The resurrection stone, as we'll learn. The hallow at the heart of some of the series' most emotionally resonant moments. The hallow that Dumbledore craved most for different reasons at different points in his life. First, as he tells Harry in King's Cross, because, quote, It meant the return of my parents and the lifting of all responsibility from my shoulders. Later in life, after all the heartbreak and regret because, quote, I imagined that I was about to see Ariana, my mother and my father, and to tell them how very, very sorry I was. The hallow Harry will soon become convinced, correctly, that's waiting for him in the snitch that Dumbledore left him. The hallow that he will use not to, quote, drag back those who are at peace, as Dumbledore says, of his own desires, but to guide him toward his sacrifice, to give him courage and strength, Patronus' in human form shepherding him through the Dementors and the chill of the forest and his own fear and doubt. They won't be able to see you, Harry will ask his mother and father and Sirius and Lupin, after calling them forth using the stone. We are part of you, Sirius will say, invisible to anyone else. And that invisibility is not a weakness, but a strength, Proof that Harry is the true master of this hallow and all hallows in a way that the second brother, who disturbed nature in his greed, could never be. Proof of Dumbledore's words from long ago, as Harry found his father in his actual Patronus back in Prisoner of Azkaban. You think the dead we have loved ever truly leave us. You think we don't recall them more clearly than ever in times of great trouble. Your father is alive in you, Harry, and shows himself most
0: plainly when you have need of him. Hermione continues. And then Death asked the third and youngest brother what he would like. The youngest brother was the humblest and also the wisest of the brothers, and he did not trust Death. So he asked for something that would enable him to go forth from that place without being followed by Death. And Death, most unwillingly, handed over his own cloak of invisibility. The third brother, we will learn, was Ignotus Peverell, Harry's ancestor who handed down the hallow that Harry has unknowingly carried since his first Christmas at Hogwarts, along with the message from Dumbledore to, quote, use it well. Fitting words, given the cloak's legacy as a tool, not for wounding others, but for avoiding wounds oneself. Fitting words, given the legacy of the boy who inherited it, inclined always to protect and shield others above all. Harry's one true love, Expelliarmus, became his, quote, signature move, as Lupin says, the Death Eaters believe, because it's so important to Harry to look to disarm first, to prevent violence rather than cause it. As we've discussed before, We associate Harry with that spell and his cloak and Patronus's and the Marauder's Map, all aids for avoiding needless pain and loss. There's no cowardice here, but rather enviable wisdom. Dumbledore will reveal to Harry and King's Cross that the cloak is the hallow he and Grindelwald discussed the least in their youth, not seeing its true magic. Quote, that it can be used to protect and shield others as well as its owner. He'll tell Harry that it never worked properly for him as it did for its true master, Harry, because he took it, quote, out of vain curiosity not out of the desire that Harry innately has, to manage a little mischief, yes, but to secure safe passage for himself and others, to, in other words, use it well.
1: The tale continues. Death stands aside to let the brothers pass, quote, talking with wonder of the adventure they had had and admiring death's gifts. Eventually, they go on their own ways, with the first brother traveling to find a wizard with whom he's feuded and killing him with the Elder Wand. He heads to an inn where he, quote, boasted loudly of the powerful wand he had snatched from death himself, and of how it made him invincible. Can't resist this, Flex. Drunk on the wand's power and literally drunk on wine, he retires to bed, blinded by his arrogance and his desire not only to win, but for everyone to know that he had and could and would again. And there another wizard finds him stealing the wand and slitting his throat, showing how hollow the idea of an unbeatable wand or an unbeatable anything really is, how fatal hubris can be in its many forms. Quote, this gives me a chill and so death took the first brother for his own. The second brother heads not to confront others, but to the remove of his home, where he turns the stone three times. Quote, to his amazement and his delight, he sees his love, the woman he hoped to marry and build a life with, the woman whom death ripped away from him. Quote, yet she was sad and cold, separated from him as by a veil. The veil. The barrier between life and death, our world and theirs. The reminder that, as Dumbledore tells Harry and Gobble to fire, no spell, no form of magic, however great and grand, can reawaken the dead. She's in a world where she doesn't belong. Brought forth, not like Lily and James and Sirius and Lupin will be, to lead Harry to his goal. It did not matter about bringing them back, Harry will think as he prepares to walk into the forest. For he was about to join them. He was not really fetching them. They were fetching him. But the second brother acted out of selfish need, out of the inability to honor the sanctity of the choice that nearly headless Nick explained to Harry in order the Phoenix, Sirius, and others who find peace in death have made, that they have gone on. Quote Finally, the second brother, driven mad with hopeless longing, killed himself so as truly to join her. And so death took the second brother for his own. The third brother, however, evades death for many years not because he views it as shameful and weak, as something to try to conquer like Voldemort, but because he possesses the wisdom to know that, as Dumbledore told Harry in the cave and half-blood prince, it is the unknown we fear when we look upon death and darkness, nothing more. The third brother lives his life, resisting the temptation to crow over his treasure or use it for ill gain. Quote, It was only when he had attained a great age that the youngest brother finally took off the cloak of invisibility and gave it to his son. And then he greeted death as an old friend and went with him gladly. And equals, they departed this life.
0: When Hermione closes the book, Zeno, busy looking out the window for the Death Eaters he's called, takes a moment to snap to and realizes she's concluded the tale. But then he says, well, there you are. No one understands what he means or how he could believe that answered their question about the sign around his neck. Those are the Deathly Hallows, he says, picking up a quill and parchment and stitching together the symbol and their clarity alike. The one," he said, and he drew a straight vertical line upon the parchment. The Resurrection Stone, he said, and added a circle on top of the line. The Cloak of Invisibility, he finished, enclosing both line and circle in a triangle to make the symbol that so intrigued Hermione. Together, he said, the Deathly Hallows. The word Deathly Hallows, Hermione notes in reply, don't appear anywhere in the story, but Zena replies with, pitying smugness. That is a children's tale told to amuse rather than to instruct. Those of us who understand these matters, however, recognize that the ancient story refers to three objects, or halos, which, if united, will make the possessor master of death. Notable that even a quester, a believer like Xeno Love dismisses the power of a children's tale. Ron asks what he means by master of death, and Zeno dismisses the question as unimportant. Conqueror, vanquisher, whichever term you prefer. He speaks with such conviction that Hermione asks how he can possibly believe that this is real, and Mr. Lovegood replies in very Trelawney-esque fashion, saying that while Hermione's clearly not unintelligent, she's painfully limited, narrow, close-minded, this is not intended to paint Hermione in a cruel light. Many would respond the way she does here. Rather, his function is to set up Harry's receptiveness, his willingness to believe as uncommon, and thus the stuff of worth, when Xenophilius spoke of revealing oneself to other believers, the word choice was not accidental, but intended to reinforce the power of belief for Harry, the true uniter of the Hallows, and the power of belief for us as fantasy readers. Hermione is determined to pursue her point, to question
1: any premise that seems unsound. Invisibility cloaks are rare, she says, but real. Moody had one, as we know. But Zeno clarifies that the cloak of legend is a true one, Not a traveling cloak enhanced with a disillusionment charm or a bedazzling hex or woven from demigai's hair, all of which offer temporary protection but fade over time. The Cloak of Hallow's Myth, quote, really and truly renders the wearer completely invisible and endures eternally, giving constant and impenetrable concealment, no matter what spells are cast at it. How many cloaks have you ever seen like that, Miss Granger? Well, (laughs) (laughs) our friends are all thinking the same thing here. They have, in fact, seen a cloak just like that. It's with them right now. It's Harry's. Xenophilius, of course, thinks they've gone silent because he's proven them wrong by displaying the grail-like nature of the object he's describing. And it is a grail. It's just a grail that Harry happens to possess. Hermione, disconcerted about the cloak but determined to disprove the larger point, moves on to the resurrection stone. And a legendary exchange ensues. So good. What of it? Xenophilius asks. Well, how can that be real? Hermione says. Prove that it is not, he replies. She's outraged, dismissing his comeback as completely ridiculous, a challenge that would require her to test literally every pebble in the yeah. world. Here again, JK brilliantly uses a core plot discussion as a source of meta-commentary, highlighting the power of fantasy stories and belief. Of course, it is happening inside our heads, binge heads, but why on earth should that mean that it is not real? For Xenophilius and other questers, the sign of the Deathly Hallows is an instant signal of the desire to believe that the Hallows are real, to believe in that which cannot be seen but must be felt, trusted. Quote, I mean, you could claim that anything's real if the only basis for believing in it is that nobody's proved it doesn't exist, she says. Yes, you could, he replies. I'm glad to see that you are opening your mind a
0: little. Fucking iconic. (laughs) Still undeterred, uncommonly resilient, Hermione moves on to the Elder Wand. Oh, well, in that case, there is endless evidence, Zeno says. The Elder Wand is the halo that is most easily traced because of the way in which it passes from hand to hand. To truly master it, Zeno says. The new owner must capture it from the previous one, he says, not exactly conveying all the subtlety and nuance of wand lore, but still priming Harry and readers alike for the role that wand mastership will play over the rest of the book. Voldemort, who does not know about the Hallows, as evidenced, as Dumbledore will say, by taking a hallow and turning it into a horcrux, as he did with Gaunt's ring containing the resurrection stone, understood these subtleties as poorly as many of the other misguided fools who sought to win the Elder Wand's allegiance by force, with Voldemort first breaking into Dumbledore's tomb to steal it, and then murdering Snape in order to correct what he perceives as his mistake, believing that the master of the wand must be the man who committed the murder, never realizing that the death was an act of faith itself and that the wand's allegiance belonged to someone else entirely. The bloody trail of the Elder Wand is splattered across the pages of wizarding history, Xenophilius says. That's something you can see. That's something you can know. And yet, fascinatingly, the current owner, Dumbledore, is not. The trail goes cold with Arcus and Livius, he says. How did Grindelwald, we must now wonder, avoid the same pitfall that so many of his forebearers fell into? The wand was his for decades, as we know from Dumbledore's confession to Harry and King's cross that, quote, they said he had procured a wand of immense power. His wand was spoken of with reverence, as is the Elder Wand. How did so few people connect the dots? Perhaps as a quester himself, he knew to keep the very particular nature of his feet quiet so as not to attract unwanted attention to resist the urge to use the wand as a symbol of his station. Perhaps the truth was lost to time or distance. He never ruled in England, as we know. Regardless, it reminds us, and crucially ahead of Harry's realization, that Voldemort has never heard of the Hallows, that precious few knew of the Elder One, and even fewer of the larger lore of the Hallows. And here we should recall that much of the intrigue around this particular symbol comes from the fact that it means different things to different people. Crumb says that it's Grindelwald's sign, And as we know, Grindelwald was infatuated. But does that make it his dark mark? Xenophilius would say firmly no, and many Potter fans feel this way too. Why should Grindelwald, who anyway, as Hermione's reading indicates, does not seem to have used it openly as a symbol, telling Credence in Beast One when he gives him the necklace bearing the sign that he trusts precious few with it, be able to pollute this for so many others? It is a visual representation and a fable alike of the clarity required to truly conquer death by accepting it. And it is, as Zeno Love says, shorthand for believing in the Hallows and the quest and the power of fantasy. Hermione, who is absolutely dominating the time of possession
1: in this chapter, yet shows no signs of fatigue, next asks if the Peveril family has anything to do with the Hallows. And Zeno's like, yo, my good friend Hermione, you've been holding out on me. Quote, many of us questers believe that the Peverils have everything, everything to do with the Hallows. She clarifies, in answer to Ron's question, that the name Ignotus Peverell was on the grave in Godric's Hollow. And Zeno, quite forgetting in his jubilation to look out the window to see if our friend's captors are about to arrive at their pickup destination, says in a manner that's described as pedantically, exactly, the sign of the Deathly Hallows on Ignotus' grave is conclusive proof. The three brothers in Beetle's story, he says, are the three Peverell brothers. Antioch, Cadmus, and Ignotus, the original owners of the Hallows. Or, as Dumbledore will posit to Harry in King's Cross, the inventors of the Hallows. Quote, whether they met death on a lonely road, I think it more likely that the Peverell brothers were simply gifted dangerous wizards who succeeded in creating those powerful objects. The story of them being death's own Hallows seems to me the sort of legend that might have sprung up around such creations. And what is a legend, if not a symbol?
0: A representation an idea. Love looks out the window again, asks if they'll stay for dinner. Pals, this guy didn't want to let you in, and Luna still hasn't come home. Run. As soon as Xenolove heads downstairs, Harry asks what they think. Our girl Hermione, even after this prolonged chat, has a positive, anti-murial-level impression of Xenophilia, stopping short of calling him an omelette, but saying, It's a pile of utter rubbish. This can't be what the sign really means. This must be just his weird take on it. What a waste of time. Ron doesn't buy it either, saying, that story is just one of those things that you tell kids to teach them lessons, isn't it? A fable with a moral, a teaching tool, maybe. He says, this story is why Elder Wands are supposed to be unlucky. Wand of Elder, never prosper, is apparently a wizard in saying that the MILF loves, though Harry and Hermione, who grew up in muggle homes, have not heard these particular superstitions.
1: As a pungent smell mm. drifts up from below. She says to Ron, I think you're right. It's just a morality tale. It's obvious which gift is best, which one you'd choose. And one of the most pricelessly perfect moments in the series ensues. Quote, The three of them spoke at the same time. Hermione said, The cloak. Ron said, The wand. And Harry said, The stone. They looked at each other, half surprised, half amused. This is truly fabulous. Ron thinks the cloak is the obvious pick, the one that you're supposed to choose. His logic, he outlines is that you don't need to be invisible if you're invincible, if you have an unbeatable wand. Not an unreasonable reasonable point. Mm-hmm. There are other ways of becoming invisible, as Dumbledore has told Harry, and especially in their current state, with Harry's wand snapped and a duel with the Dark Lord looming, a wand of immense power sounds pretty good. The flip side, though, is equally true. The wand's unbeatable rep seems pretty damn misleading. Mm-hmm. Through much of its history, it's been more a magnet for trouble than guaranteed savior. Hermione's counter to Ron's point and Harry's observation that they already have an invisibility cloak is that it's been pretty damn useful for them in the time that they've had it. The wand, she notes, would just attract trouble. Only if you shouted about it, Ron says. Keep your trap shut, you're golden. Quote, yes, but could you keep your trap shut, Hermione wonders. And that's a wise insight. Dumbledore was very rare in this regard. Grindelwald, perhaps, as well. Grigorovich's possession never reached Xenophilius, but it reached Grindelwald somehow. The reason that Hermione's so sure it would be hard to be quiet is because that part of what Xenophilius said at least was true. There have been stories about powerful wands for eons. When the boys expressed their surprise at this, quote, Hermione looked exasperated. The expression was so endearingly familiar that Harry and Ron grinned at each other. Love little moments like that. The death stick, she says, the wand of destiny. She still thinks it's nonsense, that the wand is only as powerful as the wizard. And while that is true, it's also true that the strength of wands varies. The wood, the core, the craft all have different traits, and wands think and feel. They choose the wizard. They have power. The wand and wizard learn from each other. Harry isn't cowed by Hermione's history lesson. Quite the opposite. He wonders immediately if these wands that she's mentioning could all be the same one, appearing over time under different names. The reason that he first thinks this, though, is one that he just as quickly dismisses, that it could be his own want, desperate as he is to explain how it acted of his own accord that night in the sky against Voldemort. And then Ron asks why Harry picked the stone, and the answer is heartbreaking. Quote, well, if you could bring people back, we could have Sirius, Mad-Eye, Dumbledore, my parents. And even as he says it aloud, he reminds himself that they wouldn't really be back, not properly that the girl in the story was pulled back from her place of peace. He asks Hermione if any other stones with that kind of power have appeared across history, but she says no. I don't think anyone except Mr. Lovegood could kid themselves that's possible. As the smell from below wafts up to them, recalling, quote, something like burning underpants, (laughs) Ron observes that Harry's cloak matches the description. It's infallible, he says. Perfect. This entire exchange is magic in its own right. A beautiful snapshot of an eternal truth. We all have different experiences, different values, different goals. Our preferences are neither right nor wrong. They're specific to us, as particular as our fingerprints or the flecks in our eyes. And those preferences, like all of our choices and desires, symbolize something about who we are. Ron, who's always wanted to be the best, prizes the wand that they say can't lose. Hermione, who's always practical, craves the cloak that she knows would aid their quest, because it has so many times before. The object that doesn't require blind faith, because there's proof. And Harry, who's always wanted nothing more than love and a family, than the ability to see his parents and be back with his godfather, lusts after a path to what he's been told is impossible. When Harry sat at Dumbledore's funeral, he thought to himself, there was no waking from his nightmare, no comforting whisper in the dark, that he was safe, really, that it was all in his imagination. The last and greatest of his protectors had died, and he was more alone than he had ever been before. But what if he didn't have to be? What if he could wake from that nightmare? What if the parents he saw in the mirror could step through the glass
0: and be with him again? Speaking of mirrors, as Ron and Hermione bicker and Zeno keeps boiling those underpants, Harry begins to wander around the room. When he looks up the staircase, he initially thinks he's staring into a mirror, but he soon realizes that he's seeing his face in a painting. He climbs up to investigate and sees paintings of himself, Ron, Hermione, Ginny, and Neville on the ceiling of Luna's bedroom. From the book, they were not moving as the portraits at Hogwarts moved, but there was a certain magic about them all the same. Harry thought they breathed. I love that. A golden chain made of the word friends repeated time and again links the portraits together. From the book, Harry felt a great rush of affection for Luna, and readers surely do too. What a beautiful person. Incredible. In Prince... On the Hogwarts Express, Luna shared how much the DA meetings meant to her, saying, it was like having friends. And when Ron and Hermione deployed the DA coins at the end of Prince to ask for help, Luna and Neville, to whom the DA and the bonds forged therein had meant the most, answered the call. And we see here in physical form how much these relationships have really meant to Luna, how grateful she's been to find people who accept and love her for being her. This is a private talisman, but a powerful representation nonetheless. But there are also other signs in the room. As Harry looks at a photo of a younger Luna and her late mother, he notes that it's dusty and finds that rightly odd. The carpet's also thick with dust. The wardrobe empty. The bed unslept in. Something's wrong. He thinks. He heads down just as Zeno you know, heads up. "Where's Luna?" Harry asks. Xenophilius tries to use the Plimpies. It's cover again. But Harry notes that he's only brought up four place settings for dinner. Harry's instincts always so sharp, despite allowing him to venture into Bethilda's bedroom and Zeno's home alike, kick into gear. Luna, he says, hasn't been here for weeks.
1: Xenophilius drops the tray, and our friends pull their wands. Just then, the printing press shoots out piping hot quibblers, and it's the kind of bilge that would make Rita Skeeter proud. Harry Grace is the cover, along with the cover line, undesirable number one, and a promise of reward money. There's no hiding now. They took my Luna, Xenophilius tells them, because of what I've been writing. He doesn't know where she is or if she's okay. He just knows that loyalty to Harry symbolizes dissent and that handing over Harry would be the clearest, loudest signal imaginable that he's ready to play ball, ready to stop riling the revolutionaries, ready to get his daughter back in exchange for his cooperation. No deal, Ron says, and they move to go. But Xenophilius, looking, quote, ghastly a century old, moves as well, vowing to block them, to keep them put, to save his child, his only remaining family. Quote, he spread his arms in front of the staircase and Harry had a sudden vision of his mother doing the same thing in front of his crib. This action is the hallmark of a parent's love, the declaration that nothing matters as much as protecting your baby. It's impossible to hold this against him, and yet it's impossible to conceive of losing Harry in this way. Hermione screams as figures on broomsticks appear by the windows. Xenophilius draws his wand and issues a stunning spell. And as Harry knocks Ron and Hermione out of the way, the spell hits the horn. Da-da-da! <laughs> that Hermione was so sure, rightly, came from an erumpet. There is a massive explosion that rents the room apart. Debris flying everywhere. Harry flying too. Hermione and Ron screamings and falling backward one sickening thud at a time down the spiral stairs. Harry looks around at the chaos and again sees Ravenclaw's bust. A final reminder to embed this in his brain. Hermione makes her way to Harry, pressing her fingers to her mouth to silence him as Death Eater voices rise from below.
0: We hear a voice addressing Travers, accusing Xenophilius of raving as usual. Then Xenolove crying in pain as he implores them to believe that Harry is upstairs. They note Ravenclaw's headdress again. More clues, saying that he tried to swap it last week for Luna. They run through the list of exchanges he's tried to make, and we can see the desperation with which he's tried to save his daughter but they won't listen to him this time. Not only because they think he's crying wolf, but because the timing of the explosion makes them certain he tried to lure them here to kill them. Trevor speaks, identifying his partner as Selwyn. They're torturing Zeno as he begs them to believe that Harry's there, and they cast hominum revelio to humor him and shut him up. But for once, for once, <laughs> there are people upstairs. They allow him to rise to check, but threaten him once more. If this is a plot, if it's a trick, if you've got an accomplice waiting there to ambush us, We'll see if we can spare a bit of your daughter for you to bury. Whew. Yikes. As they begin to clear the debris to move upstairs, Harry starts to dig himself out. He and Hermione go to free Ron, who's buried deepest, a heavy chest of drawers on his legs. They're all free, but they can hear the quick approach. They're running out of time to escape. Do you trust me, Harry? Hermione asks. Of course he does. We all do. She tells Ron to put on the invisibility cloak and to grab onto her shoulder as Harry, uncovered, invisible, grabs her hand. Ron expresses his confusion about why he's under the cloak instead of Harry. Harry doesn't know why they're waiting to leave, but Hermione is brilliant. The Death Eaters need to see Harry to know Xenophilius wasn't lying, and thus hopefully spare his life. Meanwhile, they can't see Ron, who's supposed to be home with Spattergrove, incredible court awareness from Hermione Jean Granger. Amazing. Though slightly complicated morally by the next move, which is for <laughs> erasing Zeno's memory as his face emerges, <laughs> obliviate. They can't allow him to pass along to the Death Eaters what they're asking about. Very tough. They can't huh? let Voldemort know. It's smart. It's essential. It's the cost of war, but it's also a little hard to swallow. Next, she shouts, "Deprimo!" And blasts a hole through the floor, allowing them to fall together so that the Death Eaters can see them. Hermione twists in midair, and they're gone.
1: Chapter 22
0: the Deathly Hallows.
1: They apparate to a field who knows where. Hermione hits the ground running, casting the magical protections in a circle around them. Our friends are wired on adrenaline, bristling with manic energy. Ron curses Anophilia as a treacherous old bleeder (laughs) and praises Hermione's quick thinking and decisive action. You're a genius, a total genius. I can't believe we got out of that. Hermione, for her part, vacillates between indignation. Didn't I tell him it was a rumpet horn? Didn't I tell him? You did. And frazzled emotions over Xenophilius' fate. Oh, I hope they don't kill him. Hermione now explains her impressively thought-out improvisation to the boys, explaining that the Weasleys would have been punished just like Zeno if Ron had been spotted. But what about your mom and dad? Ron sweetly asks. And she reminds him that they're in Australia. They should be all right, she says. They don't know anything. After Harry and Ron both praise her brilliance, their thoughts all turn to Luna. If she's alive, Ron says, she must be in Azkaban. We'll soon learn that she's really in Malfoy Manor, but they'd have no way of knowing that here. As for whether she'll survive in the isolation and constant exposure to the foul effects of Dementors where they think she is, which claims the sanity, spirit, and eventually lives of a non-insignificant number of prisoners, Harry, unable to bear the alternative, says she will. She's tough, Luna, much tougher than you'd think. She's probably teaching all the inmates about Raxburts and Nargles. (laughs) This is just wonderful, stirring, and surely we know the same kind of faith that Luna would have in
0: Harry. They retreat to the tent, which has so often felt like a cage this year, and now, after another near-death experience, quote, felt like home, safe, familiar, and friendly. Hermione laments ever having gone, calls it Godric's hollow all over again. She again dismisses all they heard as rubbish, then actually wonders whether Xenophilius was merely spinning a yarn to keep Harry, Ron, and Hermione occupied while the Death Eaters arrived. Considering what had just happened, how much, if anything, of what Mr. Lovegood told them can they actually believe? Is the tale of the three brothers just that, a fairy tale using symbolism to teach wizarding children about manners and morality? Ron, recalling how dicey it was, talking his way out of a jam with the Snatchers, believes that Xenophilius was telling the truth, quote, or what he thinks. End quote was the truth because it's damn near impossible to make stuff up, especially that much stuff under stress, he says. And when Hermione again notes how ludicrous Mr. Lovegood's whole story sounded, Ron says, hold up, boo. What about the Chamber of Secrets? (laughs) That was supposed to be a myth and it damn sure wasn't as Harry Ginny and their close personal friend Tom can attest to. This is a fun mm. little meta moment, as in the chamber book. The titular thing was widely believed to be a myth, only to be revealed as legitimate late in the book. And Hallows too, the titular thing widely believed to be a myth will be revealed as legitimate late in the book. Linking these here is a small hint to the readers that the Hallows are, in fact, real. Quote, but the Deathly Hallows can't exist, Ron. You keep saying that, but one of them can, said Ron. Harry's invisibility cloak, the tale of three brothers is a story said Hermione firmly. A story about how humans are frightened of death. If surviving was as simple as hiding under the invisibility cloak, we'd have everything we need already. Harry says, (laughs) Very close. I don't know. We could do with an unbeatable wand.
1: And he regards the backup Blackthorn wand in his hand with distaste and frustration. The wand chooses the wizard, as we all know. It's a relationship. Harry's connection with this one is passable at best and really barely that. Only his life, the lives of his friends, and the fate of the wizarding and muggle world depend on this thin piece of wood in his hand and the confidence of the wizard wielding it. Quote, all right, even if you want to kid yourself, the Elder Wand's real, Hermione says. And remember, this is after they've all agreed that Harry's cloak sounds like it fits the bill. What about the Resurrection Stone? Her fingers sketched quotation marks around the name and her tone dripped sarcasm. No magic can raise the dead and that's that. And while it's true that no magic can truly bring someone back to life, doctrine from Dumbledore and doctrine from nature alike, it is not true that no magic can approximate bringing back a version of the dead in some form for some time. Bringing someone back whole from beyond the veil is not possible. And lingering on whether it could be isn't healthy or wise. Remember, it does not do to dwell in dreams and forget to live. And part of really living is accepting the death as part of existence, not something to cheat. We do, however, know of several kinds of magic that allow the living to speak to or interact with the dead, certainly enough to make the dismissal of the stone that does something similar overly myopic. Ghosts, portraits, the shapes in the mirror, and so on, including, as Harry notes here, the peculiar effect generated by the twin cores of his and Voldemort's wand when they dueled in the little Hamilton graveyard. It made my mom and dad appear, and Cedric, Harry says. But they weren't really back from the dead, were they, said Hermione. Those kinds of, of pale imitations aren't the same as truly bringing someone back to life. And she's right. Those echoes are, in fact, the very thing that prompted Dumbledore to tell Harry and Sirius in the first place that no spell can reawaken the dead. But the point is, that doesn't discount the story of the stone. It appears, in fact, to be quite similar to what the story describes, which Harry notes here. Quote, the girl in the tale didn't really come back, did she? He asks. The story says that once people are dead, they belong with the dead. His practical assessment quickly gives way to a naked, desperate longing. But the second brother still got to see her and talk to her, didn't he? He continues. He even lived with her for a while. The passage continues. He saw concern in something less easily definable in Hermione's expression. Then, as she glanced at Ron, Harry realized that it was fear. He had scared her with his talk of living with dead people. This is a really important moment. Emblematic of what Harry symbolizes for so many readers. As Dumbledore will tell him in King's Cross, maybe a man in a million could unite the Hallows, Harry. Harry is the worthy possessor of the Hallows, as Dumbledore confirms, because he'll come to understand, just as William Penn's Deathly Hallows epigraph puts it, that, quote, death is but crossing the world as friends do the sea. They live in one another still. And yet that clarity, that apotheosis is not easily achieved. Harry's sacrifice doesn't make him superhuman, it comes fully from his humanity. He has the same fierce yearnings as the rest of us, the same desires, the same despair,
0: and we see it here. Harry can feel himself getting lost in the pull of the hallows, and at least for the moment, he's self-conscious about it. Trying to sound grounded and, quote, robustly (laughs) sane, he asks (laughs) Hermione if she knows anything about the Peveril buried in Godric's hollow graveyard. She says no, and adds that she's sure if he'd done anything important, he'd be in one of their books. Hermione is the best, truly best. But we're seeing a lot of the same stubbornness here that led her and Ron as well to challenge Harry for all of Half-Blood Prince about Draco Malfoy's viability as a Death Eater. Mm -hmm. Hermione is a rational, cool thinker. 99% of the time, that's an incomparable asset. But in moments like this, with her refusal to believe that the Hallows could be real and her declaration that a thing can't matter if it's not in a book, we're forced to consider that a steadfast refusal to change can be an inhibition more than an aid. Mm-hmm. Harry himself has given us this reminder in his, his own way many times. It's a lesson worth holding on to. Even the most gifted people aren't perfect. We all make mistakes. She continues here. The only place I've managed to find the name Peverell is nature's nobility, a wizarding genealogy. She got the book from Creature, she tells them. which <laughs> is like Creature's quite, very racist book collection. Quite a library, yeah. I'm sure. yeah. <laughs> I got it from Creatures' Racist Book Collection, Sacred 28 Headquarters. In it, the Peverils are listed as one of the earliest pure blood families to vanish in, "quote, the male line," meaning the name has died out. They could still have descendants though, they'd just be called something different, she says. And this is true. Remember from our recent restricted section on the Potter family that Ignotus's line for instance continued through his granddaughter iolanthe who married into the potter name and bang like a key this notion unlocks a revelation for harry who thought he recognized the name when xenophilius and hermione were discussing it earlier he unearths a memory of a memory marvolo gaunt harry shouts (laughs) you know whose grandfather in the pensive with dumbledore marvolo gaunt said he was descended from the peverells the rest of the story tumbles out in a rush The ring, the ring that became the Horcrux, Marvallo Gaunt, said it had the Peverell coat of arms on it. Hermione asks if Harry saw the coat of arms, and though he's not sure what he saw beyond some scratches and didn't get a good look at the inscription, the idea that it might be the sign of the deathly hallows just feels right. From the book, Harry saw Hermione's comprehension in the sudden widening of her eyes. Ron was looking from one to the other, astonished. Harry's certainty is almost instant. Gaunt was obsessed with his ancestry, Harry says, but he wasn't reading fairy tales to his kids. Uh -uh. It's highly possible that he would have believed the mark, a coat of arms, suiting, as that would, his grand notions of his ancestry, without ever learning the greater truth beyond the symbol. Wonder how much better things could have been for Morphin and Moropi if they'd just had more story
1: time with pops. (laughs) Hermione says, that's all well and good. Quote, but Harry, if you're thinking what I think you're thinking... Right in one, my love. He is indeed. Well, why not? Why not? Said Harry, abandoning caution. It was a stone, wasn't it? He looked to Ron for support. What if it was the resurrection stone? Ron chimes in with an expertly-timed blimey. Then asks if the stone would still work after Dumbledore broke it with a sword to kill the Horcrux. Work? Hermione shrieks. Work? Ron, it never worked. There's no such thing as the Resurrection Stone. Her exasperation takes control of her. She tells Harry that he's merely seeing what he wants to see. Harry, you're trying to fit everything into the Hallow story. Of course, the same is true for her in reverse. She's trying Mm -hmm. to say nothing fits into it. Yes. And as Harry notes... He's not really trying at all. Yeah, it's just fitting. The pieces are sliding into place without him even sorting them, pulling out the edges, the corners, propping the box cover up for a guide or moving his hands. Quote, Hermione, it fits of its own accord. I know the sign of the Deathly Hallows was on that stone. Gaunt said he was descended from the Peverells. A minute ago, you told us you never saw the mark on the stone properly. (laughs) She replies. (laughs) It's a great exchange. (laughs) Harry barely registers this latest objection. This is where we shift deep inside of Harry's psyche here in just a fabulous stretch. Quote, Harry's imagination was racing ahead far beyond Ron and Hermione's. Harry, of course, is not the first wizard to fall under the spell of the Deathly Hallows, only the last. And he's falling fast and hard. Mm-hmm. He thinks of these legendary objects, which, if united, make one master of death. He thinks of the inscription on his parents' tombstone. He thinks, of course, of Voldemort, the enemy who awaits him, and the task that he still faces of destroying the rest of that enemy's death evading soul-securing holdfasts. Symbols of how much Voldemort fears and how little he understands about both the here and now and the great beyond. Quote, and he saw himself, possessor of the Hallows, facing Voldemort, whose horcruxes were no match. Neither can live while the other survives. Was this the answer? Hallows versus horcruxes? Was there a way, after all, to ensure that he was the one who triumphed. If he were the master of the Deathly Hallows, would he be safe? (sighs) Ultimately, Harry will choose horcruxes over Hallows, and in that choice to pursue undoing an effort to evade death over the method to evade death on his own, he will, in fact, continue on his road to actually mastering the Hallows. Harry's courage, strength, and wisdom will prevail as he travels the road of his own quest, makes his own discoveries. The temptation that Harry feels here is completely natural, but also dangerous. Dumbledore knew it would be. Knew, of course, because he'd experienced it himself. In King's Cross, after Harry asked him why he had to make this part, and really all of it, so (laughs) difficult. Dumbledore says, quote, I was afraid that your hot head might dominate your good heart. I was scared that if presented outright with the facts about those tempting objects, you might seize the hallows as I did at the wrong time for the wrong reasons. If you laid hands on them, I wanted you to possess them safely. You are the true master of death, because the true master does not seek to run away from death. He accepts that he must die and understands that there are far, far worse things in the living world than dying. Remember. As Dumbledore will often say of both Harry and Newt, and as we often explore regularly with our other favorite fantasy story, A Song of Ice and Fire, the best leaders are the ones who don't seek power. The best uniter of the hallows, ultimately, is the one who didn't seek them either.
0: That clarity is coming, but it's not here yet. A quest, of course, is a journey, and Harry's at the beginning of this one. Almost in a trance now, ignoring Hermione she calls his name, he takes out his invisibility cloak, running his fingers over the sleek, supple cloth, noting that it fits perfectly the description of the cloak in the tale of the three brothers. From the book, he had never seen anything to equal it in his nearly seven years in the wizarding world. The cloak has symbolized many things for Harry. His father, Dumbledore's largesse and wisdom, freedom and agency, safety. Like a skeleton key, it's been the solution to myriad problems in the time that it's been in Harry's possession— and it seems to be again. The memory hits him like a lightning bolt. Dumbledore had my cloak the night my parents died. His voice shook and he could feel the color in his face, but he did not care. The realizations come one after another, after another, like dominoes. But he's not overwhelmed. He's fevered, alive with the thrill of discovery. Clarity further forming with every new thought. My mom told Sirius that Dumbledore borrowed the cloak. This is why. He wanted to examine it. Because he thought it was the third hallow. noticed Peverell is buried in Godric's Hollow is walking blindly around the tent, feeling as though great new vistas of truth were opening all around him. He's my ancestor. I'm descended from the third brother. It all makes sense. And indeed it does. Not only the substance of what Harry is saying, all of which will be proven true, but the thirst fueling his desire to believe in it. He spent so long resenting the darkness that he's been forced to exist in. Quote, he felt armed in certainty. In his belief in the Hallows, as if the mere idea of possessing them was giving him protection, he retrieves Lily's letter from the mokeskin pouch, his hands shaking as he hands it to Hermione. Read it! Dumbledore had the cloak, Hermione. Why else would he want it? Recall, as Harry does here, Dumbledore's statement in Sorcerer's Stone when he confronted Harry in front of the Mirror of said, I don't need a cloak to become invisible. Why would he have the cloak then? Because he wanted to see if it was a Hallow, as Harry has deduced. But the full truth of that awaits him still, that Dumbledore had seen, since he was a teenager, fascinated by the Deathly Hallows and still could not resist their pull. As he'll confirm to Harry in King's Cross, as soon as he saw the cloak, he wanted to examine it to find out if the family heirloom passed down to James and threw the Potter family from, as we'll realize the Pever line is indeed the cloak. I could not resist, Dumbledore will tell Harry.
1: As Harry handed Hermione the letter, he accidentally dislodged the snitch from the pouch. And as he reaches for it, quote, the newly tapped spring of fabulous discoveries threw him another gift. And shock and wonder erupted inside him so that he shouted out, it's in here. He left me the ring. It's in the snitch. And he's right. Harry has spent so much of this book wondering if he really knew or understood Dumbledore at all. And he still has so much to learn about the headmaster. But here, the symbol that Dumbledore always was for him is knitting itself back together in real time. Dumbledore did know. Dumbledore did have a plan. Harry's full role in that is one that he will only discover in the depths of the pensive. But the belief that he feels here, that there is a way forward, is not only essential for securing the future, but also for cementing anew the beating heart of his past. The hallow that most unites Dumbledore and Harry. The one that they both crave. The one that most requires patience and a mental and spiritual and emotional culmination. The one that Harry must only gain access to when he's fully ready, not ruled by temptation, but by a desire to save. The one that he can only seek at the close. You you reckon, Ron asks, about the snitch? Quote, he could not understand why Ron looked taken aback. It was so obvious, so clear to Harry. Everything fit, everything. His cloak was the third hallow, and when he discovered how to open the snitch, he would have the second. And then all he needed to do was find the first hallow, the Elder Wand. And then, and then, his, quote, glorious spell was broken. The next answer is equally clear to Harry after this eruption of epiphanies, As obvious as it is terrifying, that's what he's after, he says. You know who's after the Elder Wand. And as his voice changes, Ron and Hermione look even more afraid, and he turns his back on them. Quote, he knew it was the truth. It all made sense. Voldemort was not seeking a new wand. He was seeking an old wand, a very old wand indeed. This is why Voldemort hunted down Grigorovich. This is what the Merry Faced thief stole from the wand maker long before Voldemort reached his mark.
0: What about the cloak and the stone? Voldemort, Harry knows, would never have heard the tales of Beetle the Bard in the Muggle orphanage in which he was raised. Both Xenophilius and Hermione's comments about tales of fabled wands of immense power across history indicate, without much, if any, leap in logic, that he could have learned about the wand without learning anything of the Hallows, of which hardly any wizard know and fewer believe. In time, Harry will test this through a conversation with Mr. Ollivander. Here, he's operating on gut instinct, what he knows about the world, both muggle and wizarding, and what he knows about Voldemort himself. Quote, If Voldemort had known about the Deathly Hallows, Harry thinks— Surely he would have sought them, done anything to possess them. Three objects that made the possessor master of death. If he had known about the Deathly Hallows, he might not have needed Horcruxes in the first place. Didn't the simple fact that he had taken a hallow and turned it into a Horcrux demonstrate that he did not know this last great wizarding secret? This, Harry realizes, means that Voldemort is ignorant of the wand's, quote, full power. Unaware that it's part of a set, one that's only fully unlocked when it becomes three. To Voldemort so desperate to understand how Harry's wand keeps defeating him and what it did that night in the sky, the wand is a symbol of domination, which he must possess. And it seems clear to Harry that this is where Voldemort's quest to avoid his wand failing him again is leading. Quote, for the wand was the hallow that could not be hidden, whose existence was best known.
1: Harry looks out into the night. Quote, he felt lightheaded. With amazement at his discoveries, he turns to Ron and Hermione, surprised to see them standing where he'd left them, looking so unsure. Quote, didn't they realize how far they had traveled in the last few minutes? He lays it all out for them. This is it, Harry said, trying to bring them inside the glow of his own astonished certainty. This explains everything. Hermione doesn't see it. From her perspective, Harry's just getting too carried away, making too many assumptions and leaps. Why, she asks, didn't Dumbledore tell Harry about the Hallows of the Real? Well, Hermione, because that's kind of how Dumbledore rolls. Considering how many times the trio have asked this question about something Dumbledore withheld, this also honestly just cannot be the reason held up as proof that something isn't true. Dumbledore withheld a lot for many reasons. And in this case, Harry thinks he understands why. You said it, Hermione. You've got to find out about them for yourself. It's a quest. Adding, Dumbledore usually let me find out stuff for myself. He let me try my strength, take risks. This feels like the kind of thing he'd do. And that's true. Has been true since Dumbledore let Harry go beneath the school in Sorcerer's Stone to face the evil that he wanted to thwart. Has been true every step of the way since. But there's another reason, too. Dumbledore was ashamed. Wasn't ready to tell Harry about the Hallows because doing so would mean telling Harry about Dumbledore's own history with the Hallows. Harry needed to understand and conquer the Hallows' temptation first. Here, Hermione and Lysron support, saying this isn't a game. Dumbledore left them clear instructions to hunt Horcruxes, and there's no time to waste. Ron, though he's much more convinced by Harry's read on events than Hermione is, ultimately sides with her, and the course that's already been set. I think we're supposed to get rid of Horcruxes, Harry, he says. That's what Dumbledore told us to do.
0: The conversation ends there, but Harry's preoccupation is unceasing. He can barely sleep, thinking of the words I open at the close that appear on the snitch, and agonizing over what they could mean. He longs for his scar to burn so that he can see into Voldemort's mind from the book. For the first time ever, he and Voldemort were united in wanting the very same thing. What a terrifying idea and a powerful reminder of how delicate this dance really is. Quote, Hermione would not like that idea, of course, he thinks. No, she wouldn't. (laughs) He presses the snitch to his mouth, trying everything to get it to open. From the book, it was nearly dawn when he remembered Luna alone in a cell in Azkaban, surrounded by Dementors, and he suddenly felt ashamed of himself. And in thinking of her and rescuing her, he thinks of the need to cast a Patronus and whether he'd be able to do it with the backup Blackthorn. From the book, and desire for the Elder Wand, the death stick, unbeatable, invincible, swallowed him once more. They begin to move around again, but Harry cannot stop brewing over the Hallows, fixated on the possibility of possessing them all. The notion pushes everything else from his mind, leaving him feeling isolated from his two closest friends. Harry accuses them of being, quote, obsessed with the Horcrux hunt. Projection is also a <laughs> magical spell. We're not the ones with an obsession, Harry, Hermione says. We're the ones trying to do what Dumbledore wanted us to do. That's
1: a great moment. But Dumbledore, Harry thinks, also wanted them to know about the Hallows. He left the sign of the Deathly Hallows for Hermione to decipher. And Harry is sure that he also left him the stone. The Deathly Hallows have Harry so fully under their sway that, quote, the only other thing that mattered to him was that his scar had begun to prickle again, although he did all he could to hide this fact from the other two. Harry's so desperate for clues of the wand's location that he's purposefully trying to engage with the bond he shares with Voldemort. Instead of the realistic images he once experienced, though, what he sees now is blurred and degraded. During one of these attempts, he can just make out a, quote, object that looked like a skull Mm -hmm. and something like a mountain that was more shadow than substance. This connection between Harry and Voldemort has often represented a clear and present threat to Harry. Once, not long ago, it was something to fear to be ashamed of and symbolized an ongoing invasion of the most intimate kind, which caused him debilitating pain. This conduit was used to goad Harry into his ill-advised rescue mission to the ministry, which resulted in the death of his godfather, Sirius Black. But here, Harry, wondering if the loss of his wand might help explain this change, thinks, quote, he was worried that the connection between himself and Voldemort had been damaged, a connection that he both feared and whatever he told Hermione, oof, prize. Oof. Okay. In some ways, he's yes, always felt like true. this. Think of how often he noted how useful a connection could be, what they could learn from it. To others, it's always been unnatural, dangerous. To Harry, it's been both a source of immense pain and immense power through information which he has so desperately craved. And of course, to Dumbledore, it's also represented something known only to him,
0: the truth of the final Horcrux waiting within. Time and the Horcrux hunt creep forward, with Ron taking charge as Harry's increasingly lost in his lust for the hallows. Ron reminds them that they just have three, four horcruxes left to find, and they make clandestine visits to various wizarding communities. Ron desperate to keep them moving, looking for any hints. From the book. You never know, was Ron's constant refrain. Upper Flashley is a wizarding village. <laughs> he might have wanted to live there. Let's go and have a poke around. Great attitude, Ron. Yeah. They naturally come within range of snatchers on these sojourns, setting up, well, the impending showdown with the snatchers in mere pages. Quote, some of them are supposed to be as bad as Death Eaters, said Ron. The lot that got me were a bit pathetic, but Bill reckons some of them are really dangerous. They set on Potter watch, and that, some weeks... After Ron rejoins his friends is how Harry discovers in full detail now just what a potent symbol of resistance he is to those living under Voldemort and the Ministry's rule. Recall what Scrimgeour said to Harry when trying to recruit him in Prince. You are a symbol of hope for many, Harry. We saw reminders of that in the freshly drawn messages in Godric's Hollow offering Harry support. We'll see later in this book how Neville and others are leading the resistance at Hogwarts in his name. All around the wizarding world, even as the prophet in the ministry sully his name and reputation, labeling him undesirable number one and putting a price on his head. He stands for victory and faith. He won once. Many still believe, as bleak as things appear, that he can again. Potter Watch, Ron says. Didn't I tell you what it was called? It takes Ron until March. <laughs> It takes Ron until March, but he does eventually manage to suss out the password Albus and tune into the program. Immediately. It's the they, name of my car. Oh, wow. Yeah, I named it Albus. Immediately, they hear a familiar voice apologize for the delay in broadcasts caused by Death Eater house calls. But that's Lee Jordan, said Hermione. I know, beamed Ron. Cool, huh? <laughs> Lee, using the code name River, starts with news. The deaths of Ted Tonks, Dirk Cresswell, and Gornock the Goblin. Dean Thomas and unnamed Goblin, who we know to be Griphook, are believed to have escaped. This is bracing news. It wasn't that long ago that Ted, Dirk, Gornuk, Dean, and Griphook camped out near our friend's enchanted tent, allowing Harry, Ron, and Hermione to get news of the outside world. It gets worse. Lee announces that the Death Eaters wiped out a Muggle family in what's clearly passing for entertainment under Voldemort's regime. And finally, the remains of Bathilda Bagshot have been found, Lee says.
1: The excrement,
0: too. (laughs) <laughs> Quote, the order of the phoenix informs us that her body showed unmistakable signs of injuries inflicted by dark magic and her chamber pot had clear signs of large amounts of feces a pile of shit it was incredible <laughs> lee leads the audience in a moment of silence for the fallen From the book, half of Harry yearned to hear more. Half of him was afraid of what might come next. It was the first time he had felt fully connected to the outside world for a long time.
1: A guest with a, quote, deep, measured, reassuring voice joins the program. Kingsley Shacklebolt, using the codename Royal. Incredible. Muggles, he says, are taking heavy casualties. Though there are reports of witches and wizards resisting the regime to protect their muggle neighbors. Kingsley appeals to anyone listening to emulate that example, to become symbols in their own right for resisting the violence sweeping the land. The next guest is clearly Remus Lupin. (laughs) Lupin appears under the not-at-all-hard-to-figure-out code name Romulus. More on this in The Seven. And he assures the audience that Harry Potter is still alive. If he were dead, Lupin says the Death Eaters would be crowing about taking him down. Quote, the boy who lived remains a symbol of everything for which we are fighting. The triumph of good, the power of innocence, the need to keep resisting. And this is so heartening for Harry to hear. A reminder of how many people are counting on him, of how many believe in him. Even Lupin, with whom Harry last parted on such fractured terms. Quote, a mixture of gratitude and shame welled up in Harry. Had Lupin forgiven him then for the terrible things he had said? Lupin, when asked on the broadcast what he would say to Harry if he could speak to him, says i tell him we're all with him in spirit, and i tell him to follow his instincts, which are good and nearly always right. So a great moment, undeniably an answer to Harry's question, a message of forgiveness and unwavering support, and a reminder for Harry to trust in those he loves, and just as crucially,
0: to trust in himself. He looks at Hermione, whose eyes are filled with tears. Oh, didn't I tell you? Said Ron in surprise. Bill told me Lupin's living with Tonks again. This is wonderful to hear. But the broadcast isn't over. You know, love is alive, but we only know this because he's also in prison. Hagrid, meanwhile, has evaded arrest for holding a quote support Harry Potter <laughs> party at Hogwarts. Amazing! He's now on the run. <sighs> a hilarious loop in line ensues. May I just add that while we here at Potter Watch applaud Hagrid's spirit, we would urge even the most <laughs> devoted of Harry's supporters against following Hagrid's lead. Support Harry Potter parties are unwise in the present climate. The next segment centers. On rumors about the quote chief death eater and to run through them lee brings on rodent fred rodent i'm not being rodent no way says fred our time with fred is tragically winding down but we can always count on him for a laugh matters turn quickly serious as he reveals that you know who is still in the shadows with countless reports of false sightings popping up but none leading to progress from the book which shoots him of course royal kingsley says The air of mystery is creating more terror than actually showing himself. Quite a different tactic here than Grindelwald holding court. We know, of course, that this is part deliberate style, part preoccupation. He's too busy looking for the wand to rule. They mention the rumors that he's abroad, rumors Harry knows are based in fact, but cautions everyone not to be lulled into a false sense of security. This shadow Voldemort symbolizes all of the pre-existing terror, plus a new element of unpredictable mystique.
1: The broadcast concludes with a plea for staying safe and a mention of the next password, (laughs) Mad-Eye. These are not hard to figure out. (laughs) And Harry, Ron, and Hermione all beam. (laughs) Quote, hearing familiar friendly voices was an extraordinary tonic. Harry had become so used to their isolation, he had nearly forgotten that other people were resisting Voldemort. It was like waking from a long sleep. The hero's burden can be an immensely lonely weight to carry. And Harry is has always been willing to carry it. But nothing, not even slaying Horcrux, is more restorative than seeing and hearing reminders that other people are there with him, staying true. And part of what's so incredible about this is that it's not just having this impact on Harry, it's bound to have it on anyone who hears this broadcast, this auditory symbol of the worth of fighting on. It's clearly had the same effect on Ron and Hermione. It's so brave of them, sighed Hermione admiringly, if they were found. Well, someone's about to be found because Harry quickly shifts. From the emotion to practical implications. The abroad rumors support the idea of Moldy Voldy searching for the Elder Wand. And before they can stop him, he says the name aloud.
0: Whoops! (laughs)
1: Voldemort. (laughs) Instantly, a loud crack from outside the tent. The Sneakoscope activating within. Voices approaching. Harry has triggered the taboo. And the snatchers have found them cutting through their protections. Ron clicks the deluminator to turn out the lights. But nothing can turn off the voice that they hear next. Come out of there. With your
0: hands up. Uh Uh-oh! Mal, there's this one program that tells the news like it really is. And it's binge mode. So please toss the invisibility cloak over our heads and lead us into the restrictive section to teach us what we need to know about technology in the wizarding world.
1: Like father, like son. In this section of Hallows, Ron Weasley grows obsessed with wireless radio, the rare electrical (laughs) device that has gained a foothold in the wizarding world. But more on radio in a second. We know that radio tease will keep keep you waiting. Let's break down technology in the wizarding world in three overarching questions. How does it interact with magic? What is the history of wizarding attempts to harness it? And in what forms do contemporary wizards actually engage with muggle inventions? First, how does it interact with magic? Well, usually, not well at all. Witches and wizards with technological aspirations need to worry, first of all, about the Purfles, <laughs> Which are the bane of many a magical and oh, muggle home. Oh, yeah. According to their entry in the Fantastic Beasts textbook, Purfles are small parasites <laughs> just one-twentieth of an inch tall that attack both magical items like wands and cauldrons and, in the absence of magic, electrical devices. Chizpurful, infestations, Newt Commander writes, quote, explain the puzzling failure of many relatively new muggle electrical artifacts. Ah! Try telling that to the genius bar employee the next time you visit the Apple Store. Bum, bum, bum. And beyond the Chizpurful. <laughs> Though really, can we go beyond the Chizpurful?
0: <laughs> Must we?
1: <laughs> Note from Zach Cram in the doc here. My, that's fun to say. (laughs) (laughs) We know that magic itself can create ripples through tech. As Hermione reminds readers time and again in Goblet of Fire, when Harry theorizes that Rita Skeeter is bugging conversations not as a literal animagus bug, but with their electric counterpart, muggle devices do not work at Hogwarts because magic interferes. But it's not clear whether Hogwarts, which messes with all manner of typically functional things like apparition, is unique in this regard. At the Burrow, for instance, Arthur's plugs and battery experiments don't falter because they're in the presence of concentrated magic. And in fact, Rowling has said that magic can work either in complement with or as a substitute for sources of common electrical power. In an FAQ response on her old website, she writes that Colin Creevy's camera works at Hogwarts even with non-functioning batteries because, quote, his camera is running off the magical atmosphere and he's then developing his photographs in the magical potion. That causes the figures therein to move. R.I.P. to Colin. That leads to the second question. What is the history of wizarding attempts to harness technology? It isn't very extensive to start, largely because it's much easier to accomplish a task by waving a wand than learning to operate a whole new piece of tech that updates every few years. As we've discussed in past restricted sections, wizards have adopted muggle inventions, but only in the direst of circumstances, like when they added plumbing so that they could stop squatting in the street and vanishing their shit. (laughs) And when they stole a train (laughs) to convey students to Hogwarts with safety and secrecy. But electrical devices are mostly for entertainment rather than necessity, and as such have not infiltrated the wizarding world to a great extent. In the 1980s, some wizards tried to start a television channel <laughs> via the newly created British Wizarding Broadcasting Corporation. Incredible. But their project died early, as the ministry feared what might happen to the international statute of secrecy if anybody with a TV set could tune into Wizard News. <laughs> Imagine Vernon Dursley stumbling across Wizard Unbelievable. News. Unbelievable! Oh my god. I would love to hear what the initial programming slate was for this channel.
0: Some kind of like cooking with house elves. Mm -hmm. You'd probably need, I guess, like a travel show, like apparate with Millicent or something.
1: (laughs) (laughs) A time travel show with Mintumble.
0: (laughs) (laughs) When are we with Eloise Mintumble?
1: (laughs) Tech Curious Wizards also had a stigma to deal with. Rolling writes on Pottermore, quote, the magical community prides itself on the fact that it does not need the many admittedly ingenious devices that muggles have created to enable them to do what can be so easily done by magic. So besides someone like Arthur Weasley, who is genuinely giddy about electricity and beyond shame, most folks would fear being thought magically inadequate were they to start using muggle devices on a daily basis. Hmm. But some examples of modern technology have slipped through those cultural cracks and gained widespread acceptance of wizarding Britain, which leads to question three. In what forms do contemporary wizards actually engage in muggle inventions? Cameras are one, running on magic and populating the Daily Prophet's pages and Gilroy Lockhart's office with moving photographs. Radios are another. There's that radio <laughs> payoff you all waited for. <laughs> As the Weasleys listen to Celestina Warbeck at Christmas... Well, except for... Except for Fleur. Except for Fleur. What
0: is this trash? <laughs> My God, Marley, I need to listen to this again. <laughs> and
1: rebels in hiding tune into Potter Watch, the first Harry Potter podcast. Use of the radio might seem inconsistent with the ban on a magical TV channel, but the ministry concluded that this was okay because of the difference in medium. Research from Professor Morticus Egg in his book The Philosophy of the Mundane, Why the Muggles Prefer Not to Know. That is a Rita Skeeter-esque banger of a title. Real banger. (laughs) Suggests that, quote, muggles are much more likely to believe they have misheard something than that they are hallucinating. And the last broad category of technology wizards use is, of course, the car. Even if the magical modifications Arthur does to his Ford Anglia Chamber of Secrets aren't kosher, the very fact that the Weasleys and Ministry operate vehicles to begin with makes cars stand out. Like with the train to Hogwarts, this adoption was for mostly practical purposes and to keep with the tenets of the Statute of Secrecy. As Rowling explains, the magical community used to travel the same way as Mongols. No electricity needed, but, quote, was forced to abandon horse-drawn vehicles when they became glaringly outmoded. But Wizards' embrace of cars was motivated by a secret, rebellious thrill as well. Rolling writes, quote, It is pointless to deny that wizardkind looked with great envy upon the speedy and comfortable automobiles that began filling the roads in the 20th century. And eventually even the Ministry of Magic bought a fleet of cars, modifying them with various useful charms and enjoying them very much indeed. Many wizards love cars with a childlike passion. (laughs) And there have been cases of purebloods who claim never to touch a muggle artifact and yet are discovered to have a flying Rolls Royce in their garage. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's some real sacred 28 shit right there is, I will never touch a car and then let me disgusting. show you my
0: my flying Bentley I will never use the works of the muggles come see come see my rolls. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> the quote continues however the most extreme anti-muggles askew all motorized transport Sirius Black's love of motorbikes incensed his hardline parents still no word <laughs> And how they felt about the bikini clad muggle girl in his
0: room. It's this is a tough look for Sirius' parents just screaming for eternity behind their portrait. Oh, Walburga. Uh, come on. I'm curious about the fact that wizards don't watch TV. Just so, like, thinking about the energy stuff on there. Like, yeah.
1: I am certain that Molly Weasley would love Killing Eve. Yeah, would the,
0: love it. It's like that, or read books or read really trashy publications. Maybe this is why they're all such adept knitters. Yeah. You awesome. need a hobby. They're still catching up to radio, clearly. They're still like, radio? <laughs> this is 1997. Not looking at the Apple podcast charts, yeah, I guess. It's terrible.
1: Jason, the bloody trail of binge mode is splattered across the pages of podcasting history. So let's make some more history. Let's split our nuggets, if not our souls, by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from Deathly Hallows chapters 20 through 22. Because seven remains the most powerful and magical number. I'll go first. Number one, some nice Fantastic Beast references in this stretch. And we mean the actual Fantastic Beast. Love it. The Arumpin horn that explodes should be familiar now, as the Arumpin was the huge rhinoceros like creature that Newt and Jacob tracked down in the Central Park Zoo in the first Fantastic Beast film. Also, a side note about Arumpins that Zach Cram dug up, proving once again why he earns the indispensable label every episode. There are not that many Arumpins in the wild, per Newt's book. Because thanks to their horns, the males are known to explode, and I'm quoting Cram here, literally, and presumably, figuratively, (laughs) during mating season. Damn.
0: (laughs) Number two. More magical creature goodness, Xenophilius mentions the use of demiguise hair in some invisibility cloaks. The demiguise is now also familiar to Potterheads, as Newt also had to track down his escaped demiguise in the first Beast movie, which was a supremely difficult task because of the creature's ability to become invisible while making his way to the department store where he was hiding out with its alchemy. Number three,
1: Ron says of Harry's cloak, we've never been spotted under it, but that's not 100% true. Moody, and thus Bardi, can see through it with his magical eye, and Dumbledore can recognize their presence through it by casting Hominum Revelio wordlessly. Also, Nagini could sniff them through it when yeah. she was hiding in... They'll just rotting corpse. <laughs> but this is not a plot hole. In Dumbledore's notes in the Beatle book that Rowling wrote, all he says is that, quote, death's cloak is of a uniquely durable nature. So it fits that Xenophilius and other questers and their zeal for the Hallows might have exaggerated the cloak's infallibility.
0: Number four. On Pyrocast, Lee Jordan tells Kingsley, you've got my vote for Minister of Magic if we ever get out of this mess. Oh. Foreshadowing. Kingsley will, in fact, become minister, setting up an excellent spinoff for a future show, Law and Horror. Yes. Number five. Also
1: on Potterwash, as discussed above, Lupin says that he thinks Harry is still alive because his death, quote, would be proclaimed as widely as possible by the Death Eaters if it had happened, because it would strike a deadly blow at the morale of those resisting the new regime. And this is indeed what happens when Harry is killed later in the book. As Voldemort heads to the castle and boasts about it, far and wide, displaying Harry's body—Harry is, of course, pretending to be dead at this point—as a trophy, a pelt. Except, even then, Neville's morale is not defeated. Shouts to Neville,
0: now and always. Number six. Lupin, using Romulus as his codename, is a reference to the tale of Romulus and Remus, the legendary founders of the city of Rome, according to myth— As infants, these twin brothers were abandoned on the banks of the Tiber River because a certain king felt that their births would eventually become a threat to his reign. They were saved by Tibernus, the god of the river, and later in a cave on the Palatine Hill named the Lubercal were nursed by a she-wolf. In other words, it's not a very secure codename, Remus. Literally the twin brother of the other guy. (laughs)
1: Slightly more secure than your bogger being the moon. (laughs) Love Lupin. Number seven, the first names of the Peverell brothers, Antioch, Cadmus, and Ignotus, are more examples, yet more examples, of J.K.'s classical education. In Greek mythology, Cadmus was a king, a famed slayer of monsters, and the founder of the city, Thebes. Antioch was an ancient Greek city founded by a general in the army of Alexander the Great in 300 B.C. in what is now Turkey, near the city of Antakya. Another aside within an aside here, Antioch is a major, major, major city for Christian history. This was where Christians were first called Christians, in Apostle Paul's home base. And ignotus, in Latin, means forgiven, but also foreign or
0: strange. Mal, many of us questers believe that the Peverils have everything, everything to do with binge mode. Every episode, we're going to honor the person or idea who captivated us the most. And today, we're dishing out some last-minute points and awarding the House Cup, too. Ignatius Peverell! The tale of the three brothers is the most important part of this section, both for narrative purposes and theme. And listen, I love a story within a story. Love it. I love a story within a story. That's a sign of true craftsmanship in a story. Agree. And clearly, the homie Ignoti Smart. Wins that story. He's smart, thoughtful, and in a very Dumbledorian way, greets death like an old friend. Mm-hmm. It is but the next great adventure. And... Shows the wisdom to understand what that means. Yes, he also wins for the future. Mm-hmm.
1: The cloak stays in the Peverell family line, the longest of any of the three hallows, all the way down to the present, with Harry and beyond. Shouts to make notice. Well, friends, there's nothing dark about binge mode, at least not in that crude sense. One simply uses the logo to reveal oneself to other listeners, like Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher, in the hope they might help one with the quest we hope that you had as much fun as we did today that you're as excited as we are for the rest of this journey and they'll join us again next time when we will be discussing chapters 23 through 25 of deathly hallows until then remember he must have known
0: we'd run out on you
1: no he must have known we'd always want to come back
0: Mr. Lovegood, where's Luna? Oh, you know she's uh, fishing for the plimpies, as I as I told you. Mr. Lovegood, Luna is she? Is she the plimpies are running, as I told you, and uh, she wants you know the plimpy. A small fish, you need uh, many plimpies in order to feed people. So it uh, takes some time. Mr. Lovegood, where is Luna? It's two a.m. now. The Plimpies are a nocturnal animal, as we all know. Very active at night. We cannot walk away from the run of nighttime run of Plimpies. Should be here in a moment with an armful of Plimpies.